ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Frank Marshalek. Coming up later in today's feature report, our WFHB environmental affairs correspondent, Nathaniel Weinsaffel, will continue his report on climate change in Indiana with Episode 3, which will discuss the impact of climate change on Hoosier farmers. And now for your environmental reports. Indiana received federal approval to begin work on a statewide charging network as more and more electric vehicles hit the roads. The state will invest nearly $100 million over the next five years to build out its EV charging network. The money comes from the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, or NEVI, a broad national plan to expand charging accessibility in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. NEVI is part of the Biden administration's bipartisan infrastructure law. The Federal Highway Administration approves plans for states to use $1.5 billion in fiscal years 2022 and 2023, covering about 75,000 miles of highways across the country. The plan is intended to expand EV charging capacity and its key component in the administration's economic and climate agenda. The administration aims to create a, quote, convenient, reliable, and affordable, unquote, national EV charging network and asks states to submit their plans for utilizing the federal funds. The U.S. government will invest about $5 billion nationally over the next five years. It hopes to deploy 500,000 charging stations by 2030. Enrique Sands of Indiana Environmental Reporter has summarized plans to address the presence of PFAS chemicals, pear and polyfluoroalkyl substances. PFAS are a diverse group of human-made chemicals used in a wide range of consumer and industrial products. PFAS do not easily break down, and some types have been shown to accumulate in the environment and in our bodies. Exposure to some types of PFAS have been linked to serious health effects. After years of limited action, the federal government is moving forward with multiple plans to establish regulations limiting toxic contamination from two PFAS chemicals used for nearly a century to make products resistant to heat, water, grease, and stains. But the proposed rules would leave many understudied and potentially toxic PFAS chemicals at large in Hoosier air and waterways. Indiana does have the most miles of contaminated waterways of any state. 
Scientists at Indiana's research universities are working to fill in data gaps on PFAS chemicals, undertaking multidisciplinary studies to better understand how PFAS chemicals spread and affect Hoosier health. Quote, they're detecting them everywhere in the environment, end quote, said Jennifer Freeman, professor of toxicology at Purdue University's School of Health Sciences. Quote, almost every human has them in their blood, and they're everywhere around the globe that you can detect them, end quote. PFAS are known as forever chemicals due to their extreme persistence, their ability to reign in the environment without breaking down for more than a thousand years. That persistence has allowed them to travel throughout every corner of the globe. The chemicals have been found in many places in the environment, from Indiana tap water to Antarctic rainfall. The chemicals have been detected in the blood of most Americans at levels many times higher than those found in many other countries, potentially due to the long history of PFAS manufacturing and use. The Biden administration is moving forward with multiple proposals to regulate two types of PFAS chemicals through U.S. Environmental Protection Agency rules. The EPA is pursuing a limit on the amount of these two chemicals found in treated drinking water and expects to develop a proposed national drinking water regulation for the two chemicals by the end of 2022. What started as a group of high school freshmen itching to make an impact has grown into a statewide initiative. Now, Confront the Climate Crisis is reaching new heights after winning the President's Environmental Youth Award and being on a prestigious podcast this summer. Confront the Climate Crisis is a student-run organization that seeks to bring awareness and action for climate change to Indiana. It was launched in May 2019 at West Lafayette High School as the West Lafayette Climate Strike, but now includes high schoolers from Carmel High School and across the state. The group has held rallies at West Lafayette City Hall and the Indiana State House, led marches of hundreds of striking students, and worked with Indiana government officials to pass climate legislation. Two of the organization's founders and now graduated seniors from West Lafayette High, Annabelle Prokopi and Ethan Bledsoe, decided to compile its extensive resume into an application for the President's Environmental Youth Award. The award issued by the United States Environmental Protection Agency, acknowledges efforts by students to aid the health of the planet. Winners from each region of the country are given a presidential plaque in Washington, D.C. The students, along with advisors from both parties in the legislature, wrote proposed environmental legislation. This was submitted to both the House and Senate, where the legislation did not receive even a hearing. A comment in the Indy Star says it all. Quote, this says that Indiana has a long way to go in taking climate change seriously as a threat to our economy, our environment, and Hoosiers, end quote, said Sean Mobley, the Senior Policy Associate for Climate and Clean Energy and the Nature Conservancy of Indiana. Virtually all proposed legislation from the Democrats has experienced a similar fate over many years. The ads regarding a lawsuit about Marines drinking contaminated water at Camp Lejeune are shown many times on TV every day. The story of what some scientists call the worst drinking water 
Contamination in the nation's history is told in thousands of Marine Corps, North Carolina, and federal documents produced by the EPA investigation of Camp Lejeune water in the 1980s. That probe led to the camp being listed as a Superfund site in 1989. Camp Lejeune is a vital base to the Marines. It was formed in 1941 on North Carolina's Atlantic coast and is one of the Corps' busiest and largest bases. Like other military bases of the era, environmental stewardship there often lagged. The EPA called Lejeune a major polluter in the 1970s. The Corps says it disposed of wastes in those early days in ways consistent with common practices of the time. Records show the Marines dumped oil and industrial wastewater into storm drains. Potentially radioactive materials were buried, including carcasses of dogs used in testing. The camp even located a daycare center in a former malaria control shop where pesticides were mixed and stored. One significant source of water contamination was a nearby dry cleaning business that for years dumped into drains wastewater laden with chemicals used in dry cleaning. Those included tetrachloroethylene, or PCE, a suspected carcinogen. PCE, which has multiple industrial uses, and another solvent and suspected carcinogen, were also used widely by Marines on base to clean machinery. The Marine Corps has maintained for two decades that the chemicals found in Cape Lejeune drinking water in the 1980s were not regulated, but that is only partly true. In the early 1980s, the EPA did not regulate organic solvents like PCE, but regulations by the Department of Navy's Bureau of Medicine and Surgery in force at the base barred harmful substances in water, and the dangers posed by organic solvents were well known. Other military bases in the 1970s closed wells tainted with solvents, including Willow Grove Naval Air Station and the Warminster Naval Air Warfare Center, both in Pennsylvania, and a regulation on the books at Camp Lejeune as early as 1974 shows the Corps knew the danger organic solvents posed. The rule outlined the safe disposal of hazardous wastes such as organic solvents and warned that they could contaminate drinking water. The Marine Corps never released that 1974 regulation or other Navy rules governing drinking water to investigators who later reviewed water contamination at Camp Lejeune. With tighter environmental regulations looming, Military chemists began testing Camp Lejeune drinking water in earnest in October 1980. The base had dozens of water wells. A test that month detected trace levels of organic compounds or solvents in treated water. But for reasons unclear in records, the Marines say they didn't get results until 1982. Not that that mattered. Camp Lejeune did nothing to investigate the source of contamination even after getting the results. Also in October 1980, an Army lab began testing, also in October 1980, an Army lab began testing treated water from Lejeune's Hadnot Point water system for a potentially dangerous chemical byproduct of chlorination. But other chemicals were interfering with the results. That was alarming because such interference is caused by organic compounds, chemists say. 
William Neal, Jr., Chief of Laboratory Services for the Army Lab Doing Tests, wrote in an October 30, 1980 report, Water Highly Contaminated. He mentioned strong interference by an organic chemical. Neal kept testing the water and his warnings escalated. Years passed during which Marines, their spouses, and their children drank, bathed, and cooked in what scientists believed to be some of the most contaminated water in the United States. Federal scientists later estimated contamination dated to the 1950s. As news of tainted water became public, Camp Lejeune's commanding general at the time, L. H. Buell, reassured residents of a base subdivision where marine families lived that contaminants in the water were, quote, minute, trace, unquote. That wasn't true. Levels of chemicals were among the highest ever seen in a large public water system, scientists say. The organic solvent and degreaser, trichloroethylene, a suspected carcinogen, was found at 1,400 parts per billion in a base hospital tap and even higher at an elementary school and 18,900 parts per billion in a water well. Solvent levels in tap water were up to 280 times higher than what the EPA today considers safe. This cautionary story reminds us of the dangers in Indiana. Indiana has the most miles of contaminated rivers and streams of any state, and we have the most coal ash ponds. And now for our WFHB Environmental Affairs correspondent, Nathaniel Weinsapfel, will report on climate change in Indiana with Episode 3, Hoosier Farmers and the Changing Climate. Episode 3, Hoosier Farmers in the Changing Climate, with Professor Landon Yoder, an assistant professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. This is the third episode of the series, with this one focusing on how Indiana's agricultural sector and Hoosier farmers are preparing for climate change. that we will continue to see today. Triple-digit heat, we've seen seven days so far this summer, and that triple-digit heat will continue possibly into some areas for today. All right, so yesterday, 101. That is record-breaking heat, a record set back in 1887, so a 125-year-old record broken yesterday. Eventually a high of 93. It'll be a steam bath out there with heat index values that'll range anywhere from 105 to maybe even 110 degrees at times throughout the course of the afternoon and into the early evening hours. Farmers tell me it is a dire year for apples, pears, plums, basically any tree fruit. And there are a lot of apple farmers right in our state. Some say this year they've lost everything. As any person living in Indiana has known for the last few years, our summers have been getting warmer. The recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report has found that the average worldwide temperatures will likely exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius in 20 years. The number of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit will become increasingly common in Indiana, with a possibility of two and a half months of summer being at or higher than 90 degrees. Evidently, every year it seems that our local news stations are reporting on the latest heat wave to hit the state. 
Austin warning Hoosiers to keep cool and stay safe. One group of people who are being hurt particularly hard by the warm temperatures are the farmers of Indiana. According to the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, Indiana is ranked 10th in the nation in our total agricultural production, with quite a lot of diversity in the sector, ranging from pumpkins to turkeys and apples to popcorn. Someone who knows quite a bit about Indiana agriculture is Indiana University Assistant Professor Landon Yoder, who has spent many years researching the intersection between agricultural production and climate change, specifically how farm management practices impact water quality and crop output. His expertise has aided in the promotion of conservation practices in many farming communities to better maintain crops and livestock in response to abnormal weather-related events. Professor Yoder provides background on farming in Indiana over time and how farmers are experiencing climate change. There are responses to climate change. So corn, uh, soybean, and wheat, winter wheat, tend to be the three biggest row crops. And then you're looking at a lot of hog farms and particularly concentrated animal feeding operations uh, along with that. So that approach to farming has been around for decades, going back to the 1970s where there was a big push. The USDA secretary at the time under Nixon said, you know, we want farmers to get big or get out. So the idea was to look for economies of scale to help make farming more profitable and also to drive exports. So we have that system still in place. The way in which uh, farmers, especially row crop farmers, are experiencing climate change is you have more variability in weather. So you have longer dry spells that can cause uh, withering of crops if they're not getting enough water. And we're having roughly the same amount of rainfall over the course of the growing season as before, but we're getting a lot of that earlier in the spring. So we're getting a higher concentration of rainfall when we don't want it because we want to be able to get out into the field and to plant the crops. And then during the summer, we're getting heavier events, but fewer of those events. So where before you might have had a half inch over a week, you might get an event where you have two inches in a day. Depending on the type of tillage system you're using, you might get a lot of soil erosion because of that amount of intensity from the rainfall. These initial consequences of climate change have started to affect the yearly plans for farmers across the state. Unexpected warm temperatures and unanticipated rainfall can throw farmers off of their calendar and disrupt the growing cycles. When it comes to warmer temperatures, Professor Yoder illustrated how certain crops and livestock will be impacted. In some instances, increasing temperatures can actually lead to some increases in crop yields. So soybeans are predicted, I believe, to have slight increases in their yields because you have potentially better growing conditions for them. Corn is predicted to decrease in yields because of the high, in particular, nighttime temperatures, which means that corn has to adjust by using more of its energy to cool down at night. And so that's going to to slow down its growth. So those are a couple of big trade-offs where you have other, for livestock, for instance, You know, high heat days, so days over 85 degrees, are likely to increase. That stresses livestock because that's just like us. It's just very hard to withstand really hot heat for a long time. And so that that can reduce the potential to benefit from, from livestock agriculture. A study done by the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment has supported Professor Yoder's findings. Observations have shown that, quote, 
Indiana corn yields are reduced by about 2% for every 1 degree Fahrenheit increase in overnight temperatures during July, unquote. While 2% does not seem that high, for farmers with tens of thousands of acres, that is a lot of crops potentially lost. Another key finding from the assessment was that Indiana livestock will be less likely to eat food and thus become less fertile. Overall, there seems to be a seismic shift happening for the agricultural sector due to climate change. All of these findings have raised concerns not just for the crops and livestock, but for farmers themselves as well. Professor Yoder commented on how farm workers are going to have to adjust to hot summer temperatures. Farm workers, if they're going to be outside, um, you know, especially for vegetable uh, operations, that's a risk. Heat stress is a risk that's already uh, causing problems in many places in the world. And if you have a heat wave during the summer when you've got to be outside doing work, uh, you're probably not going to be able to get as much work done, or you're going to have to shift your hours to, to work in the evening or, or late into the night. Farmers who are uh, using big equipment are probably not going to be affected personally because you know the big combines are, are air-conditioned, and so you have some climate controls already there. It appears that for larger farms, the heat risk can be avoided. But otherwise, there is a threat with the warming temperatures. With this in mind, it is important to understand how farmers feel about and are responding to climate change. In his experience, communicating with farmers about the topic, Professor Yoder provided some insight as to the current sentiments in the agricultural world. Certainly, I think farmers are very aware that there's the discussion about climate change, and they see the changes in weather extremes happening, whether or not they're going to attribute that uh, to human-made climate change. And so functionally, you know, fundamentally, they're going to have to adapt in the same way, whether or not they're they're whatever they're calling it. My sense is that there is some change in acceptance um, in terms of thinking about calling it climate change and what that means for their operations. Politics in Indiana is another major factor that can influence the actions of farmers and generate a movement in the rural areas to properly address some of the effects of climate change. The state house has sought to help farmers before. Last year, the Indiana House passed a bill that provided funds to farmers who were impacted by grain mill closures. Similarly, another bill was passed that helped landowners receive proper compensation if a city or county invoked eminent domain and took areas of cropland. Even U.S. Senator Mike Braun took action at the national level to help farmers benefit from movements that encouraged them to not farm for a season in order to improve the carbon in the soil. This storing of carbon, called carbon sequestration, helps reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Professor Yoder explains more. You know, Senator Braun has introduced legislation to try and develop a carbon market, voluntary carbon market nationally, especially for farmers and for private forest owners um, to be able to, to, to benefit from uh, carbon sequestration efforts. And then the state legislators have, have introduced legislation to do the same thing in Indiana, although I don't believe that has passed yet. Besides these actions, there are many more steps that the government could take to encourage farmers to prepare for climate change. With his background in land use conservation, Professor Yoder described why cover crops should be supported by the agricultural sector and the state government. One of the biggest things that could be done relatively quickly would be to incentivize far more cover crop adoption. So cover crops are a, typically a non-cash crop that you plant after harvest 
uh, and that you then terminate before you start planting your cash crop in this cash crop in the spring. Um, and what cover crops do is firstly prevent soil erosion, but they also help have a root system in the soil uh, over the off season, which can help with microbial activity in the ground. And that can also be beneficial for soil health, can improve uh, water moisture retention during droughts and water infiltration during heavy events. So there's some debate as to whether or not cover crops uh, harm or help cash crop yields. It seems that over a few years it does help yields or at least doesn't have a, a negative effect on cash crop yields. But you're also uh, sequestering some carbon by having a cover crop grow in the ground that you're then terminating but leaving on top of the soil as you plant your your cash crop over it. So that, that has a lot of potential um, and to have short-term benefits because it can help farms adapt, at least row crop farms adapt to increasing uh, precipitation as well as increasing temperatures. But it also has the potential to be beneficial, especially if there is some uh, bigger movement towards voluntary carbon markets in the future as an additional source of revenue for farms. And uh, while I haven't touched on this, it will also allow an additional crop to take up uh, nutrients that are still in the soil following harvest, and that means reducing the amount of nutrients, that particularly nitrate, that can wind up in our waterways. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, one of the areas most likely to be impacted are the rural communities throughout the state. Through efforts such as cover crop adoption, which helps keep carbon in the soil, the effects of climate change could be reduced. Farmers are likely to be hit hard due to the warming temperatures during the summer and the changing seasonal patterns that can cause the timing of precipitation to change. This results in actions such as carbon sequestration to be needed. Despite the fears and worries of climate change, the state government and farmers themselves have begun to take meaningful steps to prepare for the future. Understanding how climate change will impact many of our fellow Hoosiers is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. For Eco Report, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Frank Marshleck. And now for some upcoming events. Go to the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, October 8th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. for a trapper education course. Learn the ethics, best management practices, necessary skills, and some history. At the end of the course, you will have your very own Indiana Trapper's License. Go to on.in.gov.goosepondfwa to register. Take a full Hunter's Moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, October 8th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Pioneer Village parking lot for a multi-trail, two-mile night hike to learn the history and folklore of the Hunter's Full Moon. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 334 
1-800-242-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holly. Our feature was prepared and presented by Nathaniel Weinsopfel. Our script today was assembled and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and edited the audio for today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Frank Marshalek. And this is Eco Report.